Why should I be frightened of dying? See no reason for it. You gotta go sometimes. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Decoding Death podcast. It has been quite a bit since I have released anything, and in the meantime, I have been working diligently on a rather uh, long (laughs) exploration of lake symbolism in NDEs and in religious ideas. And so that is forthcoming, but... In the meantime, I thought it might be a fun thing to make a reaction or review episode based around a popular show that is currently on Netflix, which is called Surviving Death. Obviously, that's something that is in my wheelhouse, and so I thought I'd check it out. It came out earlier this month, early January, and so it's been up on Netflix for a couple weeks now. And it looks like it is pretty popular. It was in the top 10 of Netflix when I watched it, so I can only assume that means that it's got some pretty high numbers, at least lots of people watching it. So if you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend it, and it might help inform some aspects of this particular episode, but I'm going to be talking pretty generally about it, so it's not exactly required that you've seen it in order to keep listening. But with that out of the way, I'll just give a brief overview of the series. There are six episodes. The first is on near-death experiences. Then there are two episodes on mediums. Then the fourth is on signs from the dead or after-death communications. The fifth is on seeing dead people or ghosts. And then the sixth and final episode is on reincarnation. So all very interesting topics and are interrelated, all having to do with the idea of an afterlife or surviving death. It's a documentary series, and so a bulk of the footage is coming from interviews with people, both experts and individuals who have had particular spiritual experiences. And the interviews are very well done, and overall the quality of the the interviews and the visuals of the scenes of nature and the recreation of people's experiences are all top-notch and very compelling to watch. I thought the way they handled this very emotional and difficult subject matter was very well done. They were quite well-rounded in their approach. And while you could tell that they were, they had a motive behind this, that they were driving towards wanting people to have a, a, an openness about the possibility of there being an afterlife, they, they didn't overreach. They didn't try to act as if it were a settled, done deal, if it, as if it were proven, or, or they didn't jump the shark in any way. But at the same time, they were trying to present evidence that would suggest that there is life after death. But they did it in a way that was honest. I don't think think that they were trying to trick anyone or present things that were obviously false or misleading. They were simply trying to present a balanced, open picture of the idea of a life after death. And even in some of the people that they interviewed, there was a space left for some skepticism. They didn't look down on people for having doubts because this is a very difficult sort of thing to talk about. And they even get into subjects such as mediums and ghosts where there's plenty of opportunities for people to have their doubts and have raised eyebrows at some of the subjects. And, you know, even I do about some of that stuff. So I found the whole show to be quite balanced and open, I'd say, are the best adjectives I can think of. But at the same time, they, they definitely had a, a point that they were trying to drive home. 
And I thought that they made a very good case based on the different stories that they presented and the way it was presented and talking about people's experiences and particular occurrences that defy an easy explanation, I'd say. In some of the episodes, they interviewed individuals who were quite well-credentialed, academics, doctors, people with degrees who study uh, these phenomena and even work in medical contexts. And I thought that went a, a good distance in, in trying to give some objectivity to these subjects. And in many cases, they, they tried to rule out obvious logical explanations for rather strange or mysterious cases. And so I thought that was a good step to show that they're not just they're not just peddling some, you know, story or something, that they're trying to take it seriously as an academic would and trying to substantiate it in any way that they can or or, or disprove it, trying to come up with all the possible explanations and narrow narrowing them down to where you're only left with an explanation that would suggest the continuation of consciousness after death. Just as an example, for the first story that they outlined, it was that of a a medical doctor who had an NDE. She was trained scientifically and wasn't inclined towards the spiritual sort of side of things and was rafting and got caught under a waterfall and drowned. And based on the details of her story, she should not have been able to recover for the amount of time that she was without oxygen and had a couple different synchronicities that occurred after her NDE, which were quite compelling, particularly that of the knowledge that her son was going to die quite young, which he did. There were multiple examples throughout the whole series of people knowing things or having a sense of things that they shouldn't, knowledge that they shouldn't have access to or knowledge of things before they happened. And it was quite impressive when you see someone who's being interviewed and they're quite scientifically minded, they're a doctor, they're rational, they're skeptical, and then they describe having a change of heart after having an experience which leads towards an openness towards a spiritual view of things and that's that's very meaningful to see someone who probably shouldn't believe something so irrational but does and the series does a good job of showing how these individuals came to that conclusion and in a lot of cases it's very very emotional to watch there are stories of you know children that have tragic early deaths and things that that i found myself getting very emotional and tearing up at a couple points throughout the six episodes it it was strange for me because i'm quite used to dealing with ndes and reading them and thinking about them and talking about them, but something about watching someone describe their own experience or describe something that happened to them or a connection they made just really got to me, which was interesting. I think I'm more used to that analytical side, that pulling apart of dissection of symbols and drawing connections between different experiences and that sort of thing, but it was a really great feeling to have that overwhelming emotion because that was how I first got into reading near-death experiences. They were highly charged and really moving for me, and I can only imagine that watching this series will be very moving for other people as well. And it's very powerful, and it 
it grabs hold of you and makes you curious. And that's, that's how I first started this whole fascination I have. And gradually that became what this podcast is. And so it was great to have that feeling again. And maybe it's the difference between reading an experience on paper and hearing someone tell it themselves. You can't help but share their emotion because there are people who, who are just wearing their heart on their sleeves and talking about something that is highly intimate, highly personal, and being quite brave and wanting to share it with what is now probably millions of people on Netflix. It's very genuine and honest, and that comes through. You can tell that the vast majority of these people truly believe what they're saying. You don't get the sense that anyone is doing this for money or fame or anything like that. They're simply talking about what happened to them, and that shows. The only times where that didn't quite hold for me were with some of the mediums, Because in that case, while lots of them were very impressive with perhaps what they were able to say and demonstrate, there's just lots of room for fraud. And they themselves talked about that, and so I thought that was fairly honest. But especially when there is a room full of people and the medium is, you know, spitting out little factoids out into the ether and seeing if any of them had the connection... It's just there's a lot of room for doubt. And so with the exception of those two episodes, I found most of the people to be very credible and sincere. And I even found the mediums to be that as well. It's just an area where there's more opportunities for some foul play, let's say. I would also put the ghost hunting sort of segment in that category as well. Those shows of finding ghosts and the noise machines and catching recordings and that sort of thing is interesting, but I, I just can't make heads or tails of it. I don't know how to read it, whether people are expecting to find things and having these very sensitive recording devices which are picking up ambiguous signals which are then interpreted to be communications with the dead or footsteps or something, it's just very hard to pin down as something solid, although none of this really is. But I'm particularly skeptical of the real physicalization side of these episodes, the the parts where they're trying to find physical evidence of spiritual things is where I kind of check out a little bit. Not entirely. I mean, it's fascinating. But that's the point where I start to find it a little less compelling. And I suppose that feeds into my overall critique or difference with the show. And it's not a bad one. I I love the show. But let me explain it a little bit. So I think this show will be great in opening people up to the possibility of there being life after death. It shows many different unexplainable phenomena, which the only possible way that they could happen would be the survival of consciousness after the point of death. And I think that will make people curious, will make people cry, it'll make people, you know, explore a little more. And I think that's great. Because that was what started me into this whole side of things, which I'm very grateful for. It was the emotions. It was the curiosity. It was reading people's experiences and going, how could this happen? This is amazing. That's a very powerful thing. And I think that's this show's greatest virtue and the way that they try to very carefully counter the materialist, reductionist, scientific arguments that would explain away these phenomena. And you're left with a very open possibility of, well, perhaps there is an afterlife. And I think that's wonderful. But ultimately, you're in a place where you have to take someone's word to believe it. 
And I don't think that is a tenable place. I don't think on your deathbed that having watched a Netflix show will be sufficient to give you peace of mind. And that's where all of the physical proof, the physical evidence, all of that stuff starts to break down for me. Because I don't think any of these experiences will ever have the physical mechanism or quantifiable nature we would want in order to prove them scientifically. I don't think that there's ever going to be something that definitive that, let's say, proves it beyond a doubt. There can always be a doubt in any of these experiences, although some of them are are harder to refute than others. Even when they're hard to refute, they're just left open-ended. They're a big question mark. As I've said many times in this podcast, an NDE or spiritual experience is only proof for the person who has it. It's only proof for the individual who has direct experience of it. It's objective, but it's only accessible to one person or perhaps a family member or whoever was there to verify. But still, the, the impact of that can only truly belong to the individual. And so it's not, it's not general or it can't extend to everyone. And I think that's a good way to frame it. I don't think that's a detriment. It just shows that we as a culture prefer things to be solid, that we can touch, that we can quantify, that everyone can verify. And we don't know what to do with individual experiences, even if they occur as objectively as things on the outside. We still wish we could treat them like they were scientific papers or a a rock that we could study or something, but that's not in their nature. And that's okay, but it requires a different approach to where we each must conduct an experiment with our lives. The best way that I've found to do this is drawing on some of the principles of Jungian psychology and the work of C.G. Jung. As a psychologist, he was able to take his patients' inner phenomena seriously and treat them as statements of nature and look at the underlying patterns, what they meant, and if they could be made conscious, how they would improve the lives of his patients. Let me read a quote from one of his collected works that was called Civilization in Transition. Quote, Belief is no adequate substitute for inner experience, and where this is absent, even a strong faith which came miraculously as a gift of grace may depart equally miraculously. People call faith the true religious experience, but they do not stop to consider that actually it is a secondary phenomenon arising from the fact that something happened to us in the first place, which instilled pistis into us, that is, trust and loyalty. End quote. So here, while this show may inspire us and open people to the idea of an afterlife, it will only lead to belief. And ultimately, we don't want to believe, we want to know. And that can only rest upon direct experience. Here in this quote, Jung mentions the word pistis, which is Greek for faith. And I love how he spells out that we often are so enamored of the idea of faith that we miss the forest for the trees in a way that faith only comes after a direct experience and we often take others to be our own. We should find our own if we're capable. And at the very least, shows like this can, like I said, inspire and drive us to seek out our own experiences, but that can be a difficult process. Although not as difficult as some may think. I don't think we necessarily need to go find haunted mansions and set up recorders and try to capture a ghost in order to have direct knowledge of a life after death. There is an undercurrent to this show that runs through almost all the episodes of something that 
gets hinted at, that gets brought up but never fully articulated, and that is dreams and visions and altered states of consciousness. That is the psyche. And we all have experiences of that not only every day, but every night as well. But these can be hard to understand, hard to find the meaning, hard to understand the strange symbolic language that they speak. But I think that is where one can go from believing to knowing, to finding one's own proof, to finding one's own answer. There is a passage that I found in a book by the psychoanalyst Edward Edinger, and the book is called Psyche in Antiquity, and he's examining uh, Greek philosophy and its relation with psychology. And there was a brilliant passage that laid this out in a way that I'd never thought of before. Here he starts out by discussing the Greek word physis, which is the root of our words physical and physics. Quote, It is noteworthy indeed that physis was the first concept to crystallize out of early Greek philosophy. Considered psychologically, the discovery of physis, nature, means that one has perceived the separation between subject and object, between the ego and its surrounding environment, nature. The most basic prerequisite for consciousness is thereby established. Once there is an awareness that subject and object are two different entities, then a dialogue becomes possible between the ego, the subject, and nature, the object. Science becomes possible. In the physical sciences, the ego asks questions of nature. By the way the questions are formulated and the experiments are set up, one coerces nature into giving specific answers. This works somewhat differently for the depth psychologist, in that although one puts questions to nature, nature also puts questions to us. Each patient is a part of nature submitting a question for us to answer. What follows is a two-way dialogue, unlike pure physical science. In one case, humanity is experimenting on nature. And in the other case, nature is also experimenting on humanity. End quote. What I love about this quote is that it paints such a beautiful image of the situation we find ourselves in and how we like to obtain our knowledge of the world, of that which we can touch and sense and quantify and study. Scientifically, we control all of the conditions of an experiment so that we get a very specific answer from nature, as Edinger says. But when we're dealing with nature from the inside, let's say, or the psyche, we ourselves are the experiment. We ourselves get questions put to us. Why did I wake up in tears from that dream? What did it mean? Why did it affect me? Why do I keep acting out this pattern which causes so much trouble in my life? Why do I have doubts about my faith? Does my life have meaning? What will happen to my family when they die? What will happen to me when I die? These are the hardest questions and the most meaningful questions that a person can ask. And they get asked of us from within. I think one of the most promising places to start is by making the distinction that Ediger and Jung point out. That is, we are connected to something within us, the psyche, the unconscious, spirit maybe, as a religious flavor, or God, even more religious. That happens objectively to us, that there are forces and drives and complexes within us that have their own autonomy, their own will, that we cannot control. We can influence them. We can provide them specific images in which they take form in inner phenomena such as dreams. 
things of a personal nature, which they appear to us as. But ultimately, we cannot control them. May also frame this as nature herself within us. Obviously, we can associate dreams and inner phenomena with brain activity that we can measure and study, but the specific meaningful choices that occur within this activity are not consciously determined. They come from a place of unconsciousness, which is truly unconscious. There are parts that we cannot see within ourselves, that we only see the impressions of them and how they appear in images. And at times there are meaningful patterns which express themselves, which Jung called archetypes. It's the autonomy of this activity that perhaps we can start to find our answer. Because if it's meaningless, then it's just meaningless garbage that happens to us every night and that's that. But I think most people would tell you, at least if they're being honest, that they tend to find these inner phenomena, dreams, visions, meaningful even if perhaps we don't fully understand them. At least we find them emotionally meaningful. People feeling great joy or great sadness or fear. All, all these emotional affective responses that I think most people would consider to have some meaning. And if we draw upon the cultural heritage of mankind in looking at stories and symbols and myths, we can start to recognize some of these patterns, some of these archetypes, and that may help to elucidate their meaning. And if they can be made conscious, perhaps there is something to be gained from that. Perhaps our consciousness grows as a result. I've often mentioned in this podcast about a particular dream I had where a wise old woman told me that if I wanted to understand near-death experiences, that I should go to an insane asylum and talk to the schizophrenics. And what I ultimately understood from that dream is that the voices in the head of a schizophrenic are their own entities. They're not consciously controlled, but they can be talked with. They can be dialogued with. And I made a personal connection with that in my own experiences of lucid dreams, of being able to speak to a figure in my dream consciously and receive an answer which I did not consciously create. So who answered me? Don't say my brain, because that's a cop-out. Just because it correlates with my brain doesn't mean that I should be able to have conversations with it. And so, what does this have to do with NDEs? The experience of an afterlife, or an NDE, is an autonomous process which happens to us. Just as dreams, just as visions, just as all of this stuff which people are describing in this Surviving Death series. These are psychological facts. And we, we influence them. We provide them their character, their clothes that they wear. But, but ultimately, we don't have that control which we immediately assume that we do. That we immediately assume in saying, oh, that's just my brain. Oh, that's just a dream I had. I didn't have it. It, it. it has its own force to it. It has its own autonomy. And it, it expresses itself meaningfully in a symbolic language. And these psychological facts are only accessible to the single individual. And by taking that seriously, I think one can take the jump from being inspired and curious by this series of surviving death to starting to find one's own answers. This takes a great deal of sincerity and humility, being able to disidentify from 
subjective feelings that we have within to be able to look at them and try to try to compare and tease out their meaning of assuming that perhaps there's something inside you that knows more than you do. I found a quote from Jung which I think really captures what I'm trying to express here. Quote, Christians often ask why God does not speak to them as he is believed to have done in former days. When I hear such questions, it always makes me think of the rabbi who asked how it could be that God often showed himself to people in the olden days, whereas nowadays nobody ever sees him. The rabbi replied, quote, Nowadays there is no longer anybody who can bow low enough. End quote. This answer hits the nail on the head. We are so captivated by and entangled in our subjective consciousness that we have forgotten the age-old fact that God speaks chiefly through dreams and visions. The Buddhist discards the world of unconscious fantasies as useless illusions. The Christian puts his church and his Bible between himself and his unconscious. And the rational intellectual does not yet know that his consciousness is not his total psyche. End quote. I really love that quote. The idea that we lost the ability to see and speak to God because we're not able to bow low enough. We, our consciousness is too bright. We're too built up and uh, proud and unable to take things seriously the way that perhaps our ancestors were able to. Things like our dreams. He talks about the the old belief that God used to speak through dreams and visions. And you see that across cultures and stories of, I mean, I was just reading a book on shamanism in which a initiate, a future shaman would have to undergo a trial or a, an experience. And they would, in some cultures would have to sleep in, in certain sacred places or certain places that were numinous and, when they did, they would have a dream that would uh, give them an encounter with the gods or the spirits, and that would induct them into the role of a shaman. And just that mindset that one could actually take dreams seriously in a way that, that they could shape and guide and challenge us, that's completely gone today. Even though they continue to do that, they continue to compensate our one-sided attitude towards life and will show us things that perhaps we don't want to see, things that are inconvenient, even things that are silly and funny and trite, and things that are deeply meaningful and life-changing. You have the full gamut of possibilities of the way that dreams can express themselves and the meaning and the impact that they can have on our lives, especially if they are given due consideration. But the reason I bring this up, and the reason I think this is so important, is because if one is able to recognize the relative autonomy of psychological processes and contents, then that gives one a solid foundation, an objective foundation, for answering these questions about life after death, about ghosts, about any of these difficult topics that can't be answered by any other means. No TV show, no uh, ghost hunts, no story published in the newspaper will deliver an ultimate proof on these things. But we can start to find our own answers that we can know that we can have direct experience of if we're able to look within and pay attention to the nature that is within us or perhaps something beyond nature. One part of the series that really struck me was watching the atheistic scientific couple in the fourth episode on signs from the dead try to cope 
with the grief and utter despair from losing their son and how they struggled with going to this this sort of therapy counseling camp and not being able to connect with some of the strategies that were being presented and really struggling for some kind of proof that their son was okay, some kind of comfort, some kind of solace. It was just heartbreaking to watch. And it turned out that each, each of them, the husband and the wife, had a spiritual experience that could be taken as a kind of comfort. The husband had a waking fantasy vision of seeing his son's face and feeling overwhelming love. The wife smelled her son while she was just in the kitchen and had an extremely emotional experience via just having that one sense of him being there. And it was heartbreaking because it didn't seem like they were able to contextualize those experiences in their scientific materialistic outlook and be able to draw some comfort from them or some some relief not that there really can be much relief when when you lose a child i mean that's devastating but there could be something there if we're able to recognize when something is coming from us consciously and when it's not this is a difficult distinction to make and i'm going to refer back to the book by Edinger to try and make sense of this a little more. Quote, This question of true knowledge versus opinion is still a living one in psychology today and brings up the whole question of psychological epistemology or the nature of knowledge. Psychology has a very shaky epistemological basis because psychology, especially depth psychology, is an operation in which the psyche is passing judgment on itself. With the psyche, more than with any other subject matter, it is exceedingly difficult to distinguish between objective fact and personal bias. This is a serious problem if psychology is to claim a scientific status, although bodies of symbolism, such as alchemy, do provide us with an objective basis for understanding the psyche. It is possible to distinguish between psychic truth and psychic opinion, but the fact is that one experiences the psyche through one's individual subjectivity. There is no other way. This means that to establish true knowledge of the psyche, subjectivity must be objectified. That is the key phrase. Jung states this concept explicitly, quote, Though I am sure of my subjective experience, I must impose on myself every conceivable restriction in interpreting it. I must guard against identifying with my subjective experience. End quote. One objectifies subjectivity by not identifying with it or turning subjective experience into a universal truth, which almost everybody tends to do. One can only make psychological statements that are true by imposing the appropriate limitations on them, by saying, for instance, quote, for me, here and now, at my current level of consciousness, I experience the following as a fact, end quote. That is a psychologically objective assertion. It is true, but it is also a modest statement. It does not universalize one's subjectivity. This corresponds to Jung's remark, that every psychological statement is a subjective confession. It is only in this way that we honor the scientific conscience and keep depth psychology from the very great danger of falling into identification with any one of a number of warring theologies and metaphysical doctrines. End quote. So, to do this requires mindfulness of being able to separate out what is one's own conscious opinion and then what happens to one as a fact from within. And like 
Edinger says, that's not easy. But I think this is going to become increasingly important as time goes on. I saw a study, and who knows if it's accurate or not these days, but it said that by 2030, a third of Americans will have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And I don't think that they necessarily should, but it is going to mean that there is going to probably be a lack of meaning in people's lives, a lot of searching, a lot of yearning for some kind of connection to something bigger. And I think the days of believing simply what your parents believed or your grandparents believed just because that's the way we've always done things, I think those days are numbered. We're in an era where we can only believe what we see, what we experience, what we can touch, what we can study, what we can measure. And as that continues to be the dominant force in our culture, we're going to see the assertions of dogma fall away. And that's unfortunate because they are often true and wise. And religion contains such deep truths that there's almost no bottom to it. But unfortunately, their case is being rested upon literal physical truth of miracles and historical events and metaphysics, which cannot stand under today's pressure of our scientific materialistic outlook. But if we're able to each confirm and corroborate religious truths within our own psychic and psychological experiences, that can give them a new objective basis that might only be true for each of us. But as the first quote from Jung stated, all religious truths are originally based on someone's experience. And I think that is going to become increasingly important as the structured religious systems that we've inherited are crumbling. I had a dream myself that reflected this. I was in the basement of a burned, ruined church, and you could see the light coming in uh, in the sky above through the broken rafters, and I was looking through all the rubble and the broken furniture for something. I didn't know what I was looking for, and I opened a drawer, and there was a pamphlet of, I don't know, Bible school or some kind of camp for kids, and that wasn't what I was looking for. I kept kept opening things and searching through to, to find that something that apparently I was trying to discover. Eventually, I opened a cabinet, and there was a hole in the top right corner. And through this hole, sunlight was streaming through. And so there was a perfect beam of sunlight. And I stuck my face into it. And all of my vision and all of my senses got heightened. And I heard the words that true love is that of God. And then I took my head out of the light and went back to searching through the (laughs) ruined basement of this church. And I realized once I woke up that it had been the light that I was looking for the whole time. That was the only thing worth saving from this dilapidated church. It was the direct religious experience itself that was at the basis, the foundation of the church. That direct experience of entering the light and hearing a divine voice That was what I had been searching for. Now, while this may reflect a general cultural situation we find ourselves in, a spiritual problem of our modern age, I will reiterate that this dream is only truly actionable by me. I was the only one who experienced it as a psychological fact and can derive my own knowledge from that. But I hope it serves to illustrate that we can start to take these experiences that happen to us from within and perhaps 
start to take them seriously in a way that they can inform and shape us and perhaps provide some answers to questions that we may have. There were several individuals throughout the Surviving Death series who did take their inner experiences seriously, although they didn't quite know what to do with them at the time. The woman who, in the first episode, had a premonition that she was going to die in childbirth comes to mind. She had spontaneous visions of the fountain at the park running red with blood. And sure enough, when she went to give birth to her child, she died on the table and had an NDE. But it sounded like for several months before that happened, she had this sense, this knowledge from within that she couldn't account for. She just knew. She just felt it. And she told her husband, she told her doctor, and, you know, they didn't really believe her because how could they? I mean, it's not a rational basis for making a claim like that. How does one know that one is going to die? Well, she was taking her psyche seriously. There was another individual, I think, in the episode on Signs from the Dead who thought that his cousin was outside in his yard in the middle of the night. He kept waking up and having the sense that his cousin was outside. He even went outside to check, but sure enough, his cousin wasn't there. The next day, he got the news that his cousin had passed away in the middle of the night, right at the time where the man had gotten up out of bed to go check and see if his cousin was outside. It's experiences like these that you hear anecdotes about all the time, things that people post on Facebook, or these weird, spooky events that can't be explained, and yet there is something within us that knows things that we ourselves have no logical or rational basis to believe in. And yet those experiences happen to us. And they made a brief mention of this sort of thing in one of the episodes. I think it was on the after-death communication. They mentioned synchronicity, which I have brought up a couple times in previous episodes. It was a term that was coined by Jung, and he had a very specific formulation of it as an acausal principle in nature. And the series briefly explains that it is the meaningful coincidence of two events that are not causally linked. And that's how the term has entered common parlance. Oh, that was a synchronicity, a a weird coincidence. We still tend to write off these experiences as mere chance, although that chance is astronomical. The, The meaning that unites two events that are completely separated and not linked causally is so unexplainable that usually we just shrug our shoulders or go, wow, that's, that's weird. And I think that's a fair response, to be honest. Because like Edinger had said, we can't universalize our subjective experience. And synchronistic events may sometimes have witnesses, but really the onus usually falls on a specific individual who is able to make the synchronistic connection. And this is extremely important, and it falls in line with what I've been trying to lay out here. It's a single individual that will be able to gain the evidence, the hint, the insinuation that there is a life after death. It is an individual question, and that's, I think, the best way to frame it. And while shows like Surviving Death can provide interesting examples and really compelling evidence of something. Ultimately, it's what we each have to find inside of ourselves to answer that question. And Jung's formulation and work on the principle of synchronicity is probably one of the most valuable tools in answering that question. As I mentioned before, he, he described it as an acausal ordering principle. 
there was there's no causal link between two events. He also described it as moments of creation in time. We tend to have this idea that nature has been created and has all of its attributes and we're just trying to discover what they are. But we don't really stop to think if nature can have a one-time event, right? We tend to think broadly in terms of laws which are replicable, which are patterns which through science, through experiment, through hypothesis and testing, that hypothesis can be repeated and we can uncover general laws that are static. But the idea of creation in nature is something that is fundamentally untestable and therefore pseudoscientific, like all of what we've been discussing, because it can't be replicated. It can't be have an experiment performed upon it to make make it happen. And so Jung saw synchronistic phenomena as following falling into that category of perhaps a unique moment of creation in nature by which new things could come about, and specifically as a meaningful event that could change the individual. And the reason that this is so important is because if it is taken seriously and it's noticed, then you can actually witness something that is impossible, that is that defies space and time and cause and effect. That's essentially a miracle. So if you were to pay attention to your dreams and notice an object, a person that showed up in your dream, and then perhaps the next day come across that exact object or person, perhaps a phrase, perhaps a, a sequence or a pattern that showed up and was not, not something that you were trying to force or some, something you were trying to make happen, but just by noticing the coincidence of something on the inside and outside. Well, you have two options. You can say it's chance and perhaps Perhaps it's something that is so general that it could be chance. But if it's specific enough, the odds of that happening are astronomical. And so you can write it off or you could take it seriously. And if you choose the latter, then what that essentially means is that a part of you is not subject to cause and effect or the usual (laughs) constraints of space and time. And if that's the case, then perhaps you shouldn't have to be afraid of death because you have your proof and your empirical experience of witnessing something within you and then coming across it in waking life when you should not see something in that order. Should be you witness something while you're awake and then you dream of it. shouldn't be the other way around. But if that's the case, then perhaps there's something that exists within us that is outside of time. And if we're connected to something outside of time, then perhaps death is not the end. I've been lucky enough to have a synchronistic experience which has drawn me to that conclusion. But I would not have had it if I was not paying attention to my dreams, writing them down and and having my focus on things that previously I discarded and didn't have anything to do with. And I don't want to overstate it or anything. It's not like I understand or remember all of my dreams, but I keep an eye on them to try to watch out for things that are meaningful, things that stand out. And I think that's the best that we can do. And I sincerely believe that if we were to do that, you notice things that you might not necessarily need a medium or to see a ghost or have some some crazy thing happen in order to find answers within. And it's not like those things aren't interesting or can't 
provide solace or comfort for people, but it's just when you are taking someone else's word for something, there's always going to be room for doubt or even hearing a strange sound in, in a house or something. It's, there's always this room for disbelief. And I don't have any experience with mediums or ghosts or reincarnation. I'm open to them. And I, as I've seen the objective nature of psychological contents, it, it is totally plausible to me that people can pick up on things that are coming to them inside them that are independent and perhaps can provide some information or knowledge that uh, one should not know otherwise. I mean, I think that's probably the basis by which mystics like Edgar Cayce and folks like that are able to, to help people and, and all these documented cases of that sort of phenomenon. There's a knowledge in the unconscious which is there for people who can tap into it. And I don't, beyond that, I can't really say yay or nay about it. It's just interesting. But ultimately, I don't have any proof of my own in those situations. But I will say that one of the things that came to mind when I was watching some of the scenes in the medium episodes were that they struck me as shamans in a way. I've been reading about shamanism and even took some classes in college on it. And one of the things that shamans would do is they would pretend to take an object out of the sick person. They would have a rock hidden in their hand and they'd pull it out of the, the patient's body and the patient would see it and instantly have a sort of reaction, a feeling like of relief of, oh, he got the object out of me that was hurting me. It's, there wasn't an object in them, but tricking someone into feeling better still makes them feel better <laughs> at the very least. So, you know, I am open to the idea of, of mediums, but uh, either way, it was very good to see people at least fi finding some relief. And even that is a somewhat cynical take because shamans often do go into trances and have uh, conversations with spirits or interactions with spirits which could help to inform and heal someone who is in, uh, in need. And so I, I don't even want to go fully cynical in saying that shamans are, are tricking people fully, but it struck me as a similar sort of balance that people are in need of something that goes beyond a physical solution that, that reaches into places that they don't have access to, to find a, a cure or, or some healing that someone desperately needs. But despite mediums and synchronistic miracles and hearing or seeing a dead loved one, there is always just the inner psychological phenomena that we can take into account and try to understand and see what is suggested to us by our psyche. And to do that requires a familiarity with symbolism and recognizing symbolic images. Just for an example, uh, about a year ago, my Grammy passed away. And here recently, my mother told me that she had a dream where she saw my Grammy, who is her mother. And a Grammy was in a window, and she spoke to my mom and, and gave her some advice. Now, it's a very powerful and emotional thing to see a a deceased loved one in a dream and perhaps we can even be open to the possibility that that image really is the dead person but the imagery of how it is presented how that dream appeared to my mom is objective and we can take certain hints and clues from its appearance 
In this case, we should ask, what is a window? Well, a window is a, an opening, a barrier between two worlds, inside and outside. It's, it separates and allows access and view between two different worlds. And so that can be taken to have some meaning which is being objectively presented to my mom. And that meaning would be that there is something beyond that window where my Grammy is and is able to speak to her through it. That is a possible evidence of life after death for my mother if she so takes it. And from there, we can also look at the appearance of this image of the window in other experiences and in the cultural history of mankind to see if there is a correlation of meaning, if it is presented in a similar way or has a similar function. And just to illustrate, we actually saw this image of the window in the fourth part of Melanie's near-death experience, which was the last one I had talked about. It occurred after her actual NDE, but appeared as a sort of vision. I am going to read the brief paragraph from her story in which she talks about it. Quote, A few days later, I then saw in my sitting room a massive, dark, paper-thin, mirror-like window floating in the air. I could only see it from certain angles, since it was flat and paper-thin. It then disappeared. A few days later, I was in my kitchen in the morning and saw about 20 much smaller windows all over the place. They just hang in the air. I was upset that I could see something so weird. Again, it made me worry that the universe was preparing me for dying when I am not actually dying. End quote. So that was a story that we talked about two episodes ago in the fourth part of Melanie's near-death experience. And I think was very interesting and powerful because I was able to find examples of this symbolism and imagery of, of the window appearing in vastly different cultural contexts. For instance, in the ideas of medieval alchemy, there I found the idea of the fenestra eternitatis, the window into eternity, who was also thought to be the Virgin Mary as a gateway to the beyond. And also uh, among the Taoistic alchemists in China, they had an idea of a window, a hole into eternity. And also in the West African Yoruba people, there was a, a deity named Fa who didn't have a collective cult of worship, but was an individual deity that people worshipped one-on-one. And this god Fa had many titles and names and epithets that people addressed him by. One of these names was the hole that calls us into eternity. And so there is that exact same image again at work. And by looking at these different manifestations of a particular image or motif, we can see that they share a underlying meaning of that which separates the temporal world that we currently find ourselves in and that of the beyond. And so it's, it's a very powerful thing to see the objective nature of how certain symbols appear to us. And we can take comfort and find meaning in that. We just have to take a closer look at things that we usually take for granted. And that's what I am trying to do with this podcast, to examine the images and symbols that appear in near-death experiences and then corroborate them with uh, their appearance in mythology and culture and folklore and religious ideas from around the world. So then if you or I were to see one of these particular symbols, like the window in a dream, perhaps we could understand it. And perhaps we could find our own proof of life after death. And so I hope that this show, Surviving Death, is inspiration and creates curiosity and interest in these fascinating phenomena of 
of NDEs and ghosts and mediums and reincarnation, and that it inspires people to want to learn more and find their own answers. This show certainly did that for me. So I think I'm going to wrap this up now and say thank you very much for listening, and please check out Surviving Death if you haven't already seen it. And please keep an eye out here in the near future. I am going to be releasing a multi-hour long episode on the symbolism of lakes in NDEs. I've found doing a longer, deeper dive into the symbolic material to be very rewarding, and so I'm excited to share that with you all here soon. So till then, thank you again for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>